Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Let's pray together. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you are doing in this time in the world, in our country, in our individual lives. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would set captives free, and that you would penetrate our hearts with truth. And I do pray this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. In talking about this series about a true church, many of you will recall that we began into the series because I believe God is calling the church to repent and to be a true church. And it does matter. I think far too much for far too long in this country, the church has been self-focused what we can gain from God, what he can do to bless our individual lives. And our focus has not been global or even national in that regard, that we've in many respects retreated from a recognition of the spiritual battle in the world only to seek what we might gain materially and in this world. And I've said in recent weeks that I think a big part of the problem with the church is that we love the world and the things of the world more than we love God. And I hope that God is convicting you, as he is me, of small ways in which I have loved the world, maybe large ways, rather than loving him. And I do believe that it matters perhaps more today than it has ever mattered in my lifetime. That the church would humble ourselves, surrender our lives, be the true church, and stop playing church. In the prayer that was recorded from Vicky Adundo, even though the African couldn't pronounce the African name, it's Adundo. <laughs> It really broke my heart to listen to her pray. Because if you know her, you know that she grew up with nothing. She was a street child, a homeless child, who was herself suicidal and ready to die when she encountered Christ. And then she had this little desire, and it was a small desire, to minister to other homeless children. And she wanted to start with one child, but the Lord gave her two right off the bat. And she thought that was more than she could handle. But as many of you know, now she's up to 150 that she takes care of, all of whom call her 
Mama Vicky. And oftentimes they don't have enough to eat. They don't have adequate shelter and all the needs that easily most of us have met. And yet her heart for the Lord is deep and rich and vibrant. And even in the words that she prayed for us, you could see the understanding she has of Christ that is true and genuine. And see, we matter to her, but perhaps more importantly, she matters to us. That the church in this country needs to be the true church, not only to minister to our individual families or those closest to us, but to our community, our nation, and around the world. That God calls every Christian to have a global perspective. To understand that he's at work constantly throughout the world. And you and I have the privilege to be a part of it. But for so much of the time in recent decades, the church in this country has been checking out. Sort of like a, a spouse who's no longer engaged, maybe he's gained an addiction, who's just there but not there. That's sort of what the church has been in this country. There but not there. And so last week we were talking about the, the necessity, the call of Christ, that the church would be salt and light. Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, speaking to the disciples and the early believers, that you are the light of the world. And we talked last week about the characteristics of salt, that it's plentiful throughout the world and the oceans, and it can be mined and things like that. It's necessary in your human body. It's something we use to season things, to affect things, to preserve things. That it's used in manufacturing. It's just all over the place. It's so plentiful. And God was using the term salt saying you are the salt of the world, saying that you are to be influential in everything. And then likewise, when he said you are the light of the world, we can't live without light. It's so important. It's how we see it penetrates the darkness. And I believe that's the primary part of his statement is that the church, the true believers, are to penetrate the darkness. That the darkness is all around us. It's never going to leave. We're never going to get to a place where you think that well, now we've, we've gained control over the darkness. There were theologies that really have declined in popularity, but in the latter part of the, of the 18th century, in, in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 19th century, where people talked about that the church was ushering in the great age and it was going to just basically command the world and usher in the, the kingdom of Christ and that as if the world was going to be perfect and without darkness and of course we know that hasn't come about. That the church is always fighting against the darkness, always called to bring light where the darkness is winning because Satan is the prince of the power of the air of, of this world. And you can see evil working all around us. But last week I made the connection between this statement in Matthew and the statement that's in John 4 where it says that God desires true worshipers and true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And the connection I made was simply this, that I believe in order for us to be salt and light, we must be worshiping in spirit and truth. 
For it is truth that is the foundation, the means by which we are sought to the world. If we compromise truth, if we do not understand truth, if, we've, if we believe lies, then we are not effective as salt. And likewise, that we must worship in spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be guided by the Holy Spirit, see his direction in order to be like to the world. If we are merely operating in some religious vein out of our own strength and out of our own mind, we're going to be a very ineffective light. In fact, we might even be contributing to the darkness. We live in this age that the scripture declared would come in which people say that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. I mean, we've come to that place where there is this clear contradiction in society. And there are people who think they are doing good, sometimes people connected to a church, they may not be true believers, but connected to a church, who say something that they think is good when they are contradicting truth. And by definition, they are facilitating the darkness. And of course, Jesus said in the rest of that scripture about being salt and light, that if salt loses its saltiness, that it is no longer any good except to be thrown out. And I believe the church loses its saltiness when it no longer abides in and stands on truth. And the compromise of truth is going on all around us. Even sometimes it surprises me people who I know, in fact, have a personal knowledge of Christ. They, they are genuine believers, but they are deceived in some area, maybe some significant area, and do not really understand the truth. I was listening to a teacher this week, a Christian teacher, and he was talking about the spirit of Jezebel deceiving the nation. And if you were here several weeks ago, I talked about the demonic spirits that I think have authority over this nation, the spirit of Baal, the spirit of Molech, and the spirit of Ashtoreth, which are the ancient demonic spirits that were worshipped in pagan days that certainly have manifest in similar ways today. And then I talked about the one person in Scripture that encompassed worship of all of those was Jezebel that Jezebel was there with King Ahab leading the people of Israel astray. She fed the prophets of Baal. She encouraged people to worship Molech. She was a very, very dangerous person. And so the teacher I was listening to this week was talking about that spirit of Jezebel has been deceiving the nation. And I believe there's truth in that statement. Even people who know some measure of truth can be deceived in some area. And there is such a cloak of deception that keeps going out across the nation in different ways today. A lot of the deception has to do with sexual sin and immorality and things of that nature. It has to do with what is true and what is right. But there is deception permeated in the nation. And you see, in order for us to be salt and light, we must genuinely seek him to know the truth. And to be a light unto the world. Likewise, Jesus said that, that if you are a light, you are a city on a hill. That is, you're going to be seen very clearly that you can't hide such a, a glorious light in some way. And so he said, 
that we are to give light to the world, to let your light shine so that they may see, that is, the world may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That by the goodness in your life, by your deeds, that the Lord would be so glorified, people would see him. But can we point to the church in this country and say, look at the church. And does it bring glory to God? Too much of the time, I think the church has sought to bring glory to man. Now this week, I want to talk about something that is very directly related to that. It is the idea of the service or the good deeds that God calls us to. That if we are truly his people, we should be serving joyfully. And I'll go back to the scripture we were just looking at about being salt and light. And you notice that part right at the end where it says, so that they may see your good deeds. Now, let me start by asking you to define good deeds. How would you define good deeds? And let me suggest to you that a definition is more elusive than you might think, and it's far more variable than you might think. Because how could I go about defining good deeds for you? Now, one of the things that I've been contemplating a lot in recent days is why is it that so many young people in the age bracket of 19 to 29, abandoned the church. And this is very true today. That we, statistics indicate that 80% of young people are exposed to the church before they leave high school. But then a complete reverse, 80% of young people between the ages of 19 and 29 have nothing to do with the church. And that number is increasing, not decreasing. Well, why is that? And, you know, it's not only true today. It's not a new novel phenomenon. In fact, it was exactly the story of my life. I've mentioned that I became a Christian at 28. Between 18 and 28, disengaged from the church completely. And why is that? Well, as I think about it, I think it has something to do with how the church has defined good deeds. That in large measure, what the church has done for a long period of time is try to control people by saying that these are the good deeds or the expectations that God has for you. And if you do these good things, then God is satisfied with you. And primarily, the good things are the things that you do under the model of the church and within the church walls. In other words, that you undertake the right practices, that you do the right sacraments, you perform the right religious duties as required of whatever church model you encountered, that you give of your resources to the church at a satisfactory level, that you practice the religious standards that we have set forth, whatever it might be by your attendance or your, sometimes by your abstinence from something. 
In other words, I think the model of the church that has largely been pervasive in much of the world, and certainly in this country, is one of establishing religion under the control of man and then saying to young people, here's the model, adapt to it and fit in it. At the same time, as a young person seeing the great contradiction between the lives of those who were abiding by the religious standards, but whose lives were inconsistent. Let me see if I can restate that in a way to make us think about it more clearly. How many of you have known people, don't raise your hands, who claim to be Christian, yet whose life their lifestyle, their actions, their choices were inconsistent with that claim. Where they were immoral in some way or there were people who lied or stole or whatever it might have been. That there was a great inconsistency in what they claimed versus how they lived. And sometimes the inconsistency was not one that was so evident to people Outside, In other words, they put on a good facade outside, but to those who knew them most closely, they saw the inconsistency. In fact, you know, one of the problems is what is referred to as PKs. Now, that's not place kicker. That's pastor's kids. And... When people find out that somebody is a PK, a pastor's kid, they sort of go, oh, what you must have suffered through. And there is this little reputation that a lot of PKs tend to be what? What would you fill in the blank? Rebellious. That was the word I was looking for. They tend to rebel against something. And what would that possibly be? An inconsistency. Stating and declaring this without living it. And you see, I believe that right there is the primary reason that young people today are in rebellion against the church because the church has declared a set of religious standards and failed to live it. Fail to be the salt and light. Fail to seek after holiness. Fail to be what God has called us to be, genuine disciples who recognize the spiritual war, who are constantly fighting the battle, trying to advance the kingdom of God one person at a time. That we are to be filled with good deeds so that we would praise, everyone would praise our Father in heaven. But then we go to the question of what? are good deeds. And let me suggest, no more than that, argue that they are not meeting religious standards. Now, if we go to the scripture in Romans chapter 4, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, he earns them. But this is saying Abraham did not earn righteousness. It was not an obligation that God had to give to him, but rather that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. It goes on to say, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, that his faith is credited in this way. Now, so the scripture declares clearly that faith, first of all, is a gift from God. It is something that we exercise, and it is through faith, by the grace of God, that any of us has salvation. People ask the question, well, how could it be that a person would be saved if they live before Christ came into this world? Well, Abraham's the perfect example. They're saved the same way that you and I are saved, by faith. That any person who has faith in the living God, however it is manifest by a work of the Holy Spirit speaking to that person's heart and drawing them to himself. It's like Rahab the harlot who was from a different culture, how did she have faith? How does her name end up in the lineage of Christ? Things of that nature. It's because she had faith that was credited to her as righteousness. She believed on what she could understand by a work of the Holy Spirit, and she knew the living God. So if all we need is faith, why do good deeds or works matter? Now, some of you, probably many of you, grew up and were exposed to a church culture where you were explicitly told that it wasn't just faith, but works were a requirement for salvation. How many of you, you can raise your hands, how many of you would say that you were told that it wasn't just faith, but works were an additional explicit requirement for salvation? Raise your hands. Look at that. And then some of you, if it wasn't that way, if it wasn't explicit, it was implicit. Implied that, well, you must still do good things in order for God to be satisfied with you. And then for some of us, it wasn't so much the message of the church. It might have been that the church message was salvation by faith that works weren't a requirement, but somehow you still tended to believe that. You know, one of the complexities of parenting is when you've got a child that you know has a sin nature, and yet you're trying to get them not to behave in such ways that are difficult, and you reward good behavior, and you discipline bad behavior, what you are saying to them, whether you want to or not, is this is the model of how God treats you. I mean, this is one of the things I wrestled with as a parent was, you don't want to set up a false model to a child, but yet part of how we go about parenting almost implies that God is pleased with you if you do good things and he will discipline you if you don't. And so in order to please God in this life, you earn his favor by doing good things. And most of us believe that. 
And here's part of the problem. The spirits of evil know that, and they set up before you false models of what is good. You see, in a day and age when people call evil good and good evil, spirits of evil set up false models of what is good and says to people, then follow these things, do these things. And there's something in our soul that believes, yeah, that's valuable. Like, for example, when I was in England in March, we rode the subway or what they call the underground. And we rode it quite a few times. And there was something that surprised me. It it didn't surprise me so much the first time it happened, but it surprised me when it happened over and over and over and over. And that is, you'd get on the underground and maybe find a seat or be standing and holding on. And as soon as the doors closed and it got ready to take off, there'd be somebody who would stand up and start begging. Often they would be at one end of the of the train and of of that particular section and they would just start begging and they might walk in front of every person with something, a cup or whatever it might be and, and basically almost guilting you into putting something into their cup. And like I said, it didn't surprise me the first time but when it happened over and over and over, it's like, wow, this is just a common thing here. Now, of course, I'm a little jaded Actually, no, I'm a lot jaded because I've been lied to a lot and the church has been lied to a lot. People contacting us, wanting help with certain things, and, and we find they're lying to us about so forth. And we vet people and things of that nature now. And, and then I've been around a lot of people who are addicts who will lie to get money. They will steal to get money in order to serve their addiction, things like that. So I'm pretty jaded and careful about giving money to anybody because sometimes you're making the mistake of enabling their addiction by giving them cash. I'd be happy to buy them a meal, things like that. In fact, there was a time when I offered to buy a guy a meal who wanted cash, and he said, no, didn't want it. If I didn't give him cash, wasn't going to help him. And um, even though he was saying he was hungry, you know, he had a sign and so forth. And so we're on the train, and I, I was really starting to watch people. Now, I did pray about whether or not I should help anybody, and I didn't drop a dime into anybody's cup. You know, as far as I was concerned, I'm a guest in this country, and I'm, a, an, I'm a, an observer. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you would have probably put something in the cup. So don't raise your hands. You don't have to. But a lot of you would have, right? Then the question is, why? What would have been your motive? Maybe it was a real genuine love and compassion and you just want to help the person. Is it possible, however, that your motive might have been guilt? that I have something and they apparently don't and I feel a little twinge of guilt and I relieve my guilt by dropping something in the cup. Not many of you would know this, but many, many years ago, we took up an offering here at Celebration Church. It's been at least 15 years ago when we stopped. And I really felt we should stop. There was something about it I didn't like. And I felt it was sort of like the beggar on the train walking by with the cup, going, put something in, please. 
And especially if they looked at you. And you see, what happens there is you motivate people to act by guilt. And a lot of what the church has done for centuries is to motivate people through guilt. And I don't believe that's from God at all. In fact, the Scripture says this in Ephesians, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It does say that we, were, we are God's creation, his workmanship created to do good works. Now, on the one hand, the Scripture makes quite clear that salvation is not a function of works, that even faith itself is a gift from God imparted to you by the Holy Spirit. Somehow in the mystery of your soul and the interaction with the Holy Spirit, you act upon that, and then you receive salvation, but you don't earn it. And there is absolutely no way any human being could earn salvation. Yet, Every false religion of the world says to people, you earn the favor of God by doing these religious endeavors. Do you realize that? That every religion of the world, except for Christianity, is a works religion. Every religion. You, you, doesn't matter how you look at it, you dissect it, you'll find that it's a works religion. You earn karma by doing good works, or you please Allah by doing the right pillars and so forth. Every religion of the world is a works religion, except for genuine and true Christianity. But here's what the spirits of evil do, and I'm sure it's Satan's right behind it, is he wants to perpetrate the idea among Christians that you too are a part of a work religion that you earn the favor of God, that you earn salvation, that you could never be certain of your salvation, that you've always got to do more. And then the question is, when, when have I done enough? Well, Satan always wants you to believe that you've never done enough. Keep working. Exhaust yourself. Wear yourself out. So as I was on that underground and I was watching people, you know, they would pull out a coin and drop it in and so forth. I was really looking sort of into their minds and trying to think, now, what was it that's motivating that individual? Because some of these people ride the underground every day to and from work. They encounter the beggars every day. Probably some of them come with some small coins every day just for that purpose. And you see, the question would be, what would motivate them? And the question with regard to our good deeds, because the scripture says we are called to good deeds, let your good deeds shine so that the world can see them. What is the motive? And so all of us should assess what are the things that motivate me to do what I believe God is calling me to do might even need to assess what is it that's motivating me not to do what God is calling me to do. But let me suggest to you, your definition of good deeds must be personalized. 
You see, this is the problem of the church, is we have tried to say, we know what good deeds are, here they are, do the things that we tell you to do. I don't believe that's what is stated here when it says that God has created you to do good works, that he has prepared in advance for you. Now, you see, I believe every person is uniquely gifted. When I was, before I knew the Lord and young, I thought there were some people who were more talented, more gifted, more whatever it was than others. I don't think that way now. I think every person is uniquely gifted. There's some people who are gifted in analytically and they can do things like be engineers and so forth but there's some people who are gifted with say art or something and they can paint or or draw they're just all these different gifts and there's a different mix for every person and even though our systems sort of create a hierarchy of this is better and this is not I believe that's a false hierarchy that every person is extraordinarily gifted by God and every person is uniquely gifted to fulfill the good deeds the good works that God has prepared in advance for you just you so I cannot define what are good deeds for you I can't do it I think it's impossible I would say that an adequate, proper definition of good deeds would be this. That which God calls you personally to fulfill by the gifts and talents that he has equipped you with and that you are fulfilling through the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. So if you are uniquely gifted, let's say, as a teacher of art and you're spending your time teaching art... And you think, I'm not doing anything in the kingdom of God because I'm not doing something in the church. You are missing it. Your good deeds are you using your gifts according to the power of the Spirit in you, the way that God has gifted you to do day in and day out. I think of our dear friend, Lori Vaughn. Many of you know Lori, many of you don't. But Lori was our children's minister here at Celebration for many years. And just a wonderful children's minister. In fact, she just blessed so many children during those years. When she left here, she became a missionary. And uh, she is gifted as an art teacher. That's her primary gift, or one of her primary gifts. And she spent time in another country teaching children, presenting the gospel to them, but teaching children and using her teaching gift, her art gift, as in a primary way. You see, the, the gifts that she uniquely had, those are the things that bear good fruit. Those are the good deeds of her life. Likewise, maybe you're gifted and skilled as a carpenter. Like I've known some people who are really good at that, who have blessed me, who have served me over the years. And those people, those are their good deeds before the Lord. They are, the, they are gifted with craftsmanship. God has equipped them to do that work. And in fulfilling that work, you're fulfilling what God has prepared in advance for you to do. Some of you like, might be equipped to uh, teach little children, really little children. And you're really good at it. And you love them and you enjoy it. 
Can you imagine if I was appointed to teach little children? They would be miserable, and so would I. Because I would say, children, get out your concordance today. We're going to review the Levitical law, and you're going to abide by it. But you see, everybody's gifted in different ways. This is why the title of this teaching is Serve Joyfully. If you are serving in any capacity in the world, it's not just within the confines of a church. If you are serving people in any capacity and you are doing what God has gifted you to do, you're going to do it joyfully. Scripture says in James, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now, this is one of those places where people like, well, the Scripture has contradictions. Most of the people who say that, if you put them on the spot, well, show it to me, cannot do so. The Scripture has tensions, things that must be sorted out and understood, sometimes that are not easy. Because the Scripture talks on the one hand about our faith is credited as righteousness, but then here James says, what good is it if you have faith but no deeds? And see, those in religious history who have emphasized deeds as a part of salvation would take this without taking the full context of Scripture. He says, can such a faith save you? Now, is he saying that works lead to salvation? No. Now, it is interesting that the Protestant Reformation really began out of Martin Luther and others, but primarily Martin Luther, arguing against the Catholic Church because the church was placing religious requirements upon people saying these are the good deeds And Martin Luther was saying, no, salvation is by faith through grace that the message being taught by the church is a false message. And it began this big argument. The church wanted to literally not just persecute but kill Martin Luther to put down this rebellion. But he was standing for truth. But oddly enough, Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He questioned whether it should be a part of the Bible. And I think Martin Luther in that case was a little blinded. He was so staunch on salvation by faith through grace, which, he, which was good that he was, that he didn't recognize that the person who has genuine faith will inevitably have good deeds. You see, it's impossible to know Christ and walk with him and be a do-nothing. It's impossible because the Holy Spirit in you wants to do what the Spirit of God has planned in advance for you to do. And so this is what James is saying. He says, look, if you have saving faith, you're going to have good deeds. If you don't have good deeds, do you have saving faith? And see, this is a problem in the culture in which we live. A lot of people want salvation, but they want it as a license to sin rather than an invitation to seek holiness. And they're There is no fruit in their life. There is no real function of the Holy Spirit. In which case, I would say, do you know him? I'm convinced there are a lot of people in churches, maybe they're church members, who don't know him. And maybe you're here and you're you're really questioning that. Maybe somebody listening on on radio or watching online that, that 
you are at a place where you've been connected to some idea of Christ or you've been connected to some church, but do you know him? Do you personally know him? Do you walk with him? Do you hear his voice? Are you guided by his spirit? See, if you genuinely know him, you cannot help but do good deeds because the spirit of God in you, to the extent that you surrender to him, he is going to accomplish good things through you. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and they come to you and you say, well, keep warm, well-fed, go on about your way, leave me alone. That's basically what sometimes we do. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The church should be overflowing with good deeds, but not religious endeavors, but, and not in the confines of the church, but in the world. By the gifts and talents that we are equipped with. See, this is why we say that the church is an organism. It's not an organization. It's not a building. And when this building, the lights are out and it's dark in here, the church is scattered throughout the community. The building is not a church. You don't come here to worship the church. You are the church. But the church should be filled with good deeds. And here is the primary problem, I do think. The church has been so self-focused and so unsurrendered to the Spirit of God in this country for decades that our deeds have been minimal to impact the world. I think back through my life and I think, did I know some people, even before I was a Christian, who were so in love with Christ, so filled with the Spirit, that in the context of where, wherever I knew them, that they obviously were different. That the light of Christ showed very brightly through them. And I can think of various people. Now, before I was a Christian, I didn't recognize what that was or why that was, but I can think of people that were like that long before I knew Christ. There was something different in them. And see, they were salt and light, maybe in not such a vocal, vibrant way of that character, but in how they lived and what they did. And so I would go back and ask you a question again. Can you define good deeds? And let me suggest that you can't define it for another person. You can only define it for yourself. Good deeds are you surrendering your life to Christ, being guided by the Holy Spirit, using the gifts and talents that he has given you and equipped you with under his power and his authority to accomplish what he has prepared in advance for you to do. It's a personal definition. And you see, if the church, that means every single believer, was functioning in that way, how much more influential and powerful the church would be. Lastly, the scripture says this in Hebrews. 
It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. I like that word unswervingly, probably because it is the antithesis of how I drove as a teenager, which is true. For he who promised is faithful. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How we may encourage others toward good deeds. Now, you know, one of the ways that we do that here at Celebration is part of what we call the discovery class that I'm going to be teaching today. In part two of the discovery class, we give you a spiritual gifts test and we talk about spiritual gifts, encouraging you to understand how God has equipped you for the things that he has called you to do. We don't, don't then tell you what you must do. We suggest to you these are the things that you might understand about yourself in a better way and see how God is wanting to use you. You know, there are certain spiritual gifts that become fairly obvious fairly early. Like a child who's very gifted with, uh, um, say, music or something like that. Those gifts show up fairly early. But there are other gifts that God gives that you really don't see come to fruition until later in life. Like, say, a gift of leadership. You might get glimpses of that in somebody when they're young, but you really you're not going to see it till they get a little older. Or even gifts of administration, things like that. Then there are other gifts like, say, gifts of craftsmanship where you're able to create things with your hands. Some kids, you, you see it in them very early on. But there are a gift, say the gift of intercession. You know, some people, their primary spiritual gift is the gift of intercession. Unless they are around a unique, godly, wise person when they are a child, most people aren't going to recognize that gift. They may not even recognize it themselves until they get older. But in all spiritual gifts, God wants you to be aware of how he's created you uniquely for good deeds that he has prepared in advance. Our job is to encourage one another in this. This is why the scripture says there, let us not give up meeting together. Now, of course, during COVID, it's an unusual time. And I, I hear from people who are longing to be here. They're watching online. But because for whatever situation they're in, it's wise for them to stay away. Well, that's different. But in general, we need each other. The body of Christ needs to be together to be encouragers to one another. See, more than anything else, probably, when you walk away any given weekend, if you walk away encouraged in any way, then the church has been a positive effect. And maybe it's not encouraged by the teaching. Maybe it's not encouraged by the music. Maybe it was you were encouraged by the person who stopped and talked to you in the lobby for two minutes. The body of Christ needs encouragement in this way, that we would encourage one another partly in serving joyfully. You know, let me suggest to you, one of the things you can do in helping others in this way is to encourage them to take risk. Like somebody has an idea, maybe I should do that, I don't know. Encourage them to take the risk when it involves serving somebody else. When it involves stepping out. Or maybe like if you have a teenager in your home and they're thinking about something and they've got an idea that seems a bit far-fetched, maybe you should say, go for it. You might be surprised 
what a little encouragement will do in terms of helping somebody understand their gifts and talents to be what God has called them to be. So you see, I believe God's calling the church to be the true church by being true servants. Not completing religious obligations, but fulfilling the good deeds that he has equipped us to fulfill by his strength. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person here. In fact, let me stop. I think the Lord reminded me of something. You can wake back up. I said, if your motive for good deeds is guilt, it's wrong. God does not motivate people by guilt. Do you realize that? He takes away guilt. He takes away shame. He doesn't motivate by guilt. And then there's something else that's important. If your motivation for good deeds is the approval of man, your motive is wrong. And do you realize in the history of the church, oftentimes the church has tried to motivate people by guilt and motivate them to seek the approval of man. Good deeds are not motivated by guilt and they're not, they don't have the goal of finding the approval of man. They are motivated by love for the one who saved you. Now let's pray. Lord, I do ask you to forgive us where we have sought to do things in your name that were not your work. I ask for every person here who has been motivated by guilt or the approval of man to be set free. That their motive would be love for you and you alone. And love that you give us for others. I pray we would enjoy serving you day in and day out in the tasks that you give us in life in all segments of society. Realize those are the good deeds that you have appointed in advance for us to do. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.